The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Attending a black history assembly at my daughter's school filled me with both sorrow and gratitude. Sorrow for our dark past of slavery, Jim Crow, and ongoing inequity. Gratitude for the steady beat of contributions made by those who persisted despite it all. Sorrow because this was my country's history, my history, which had been kept from me. Gratitude that my children had the opportunity to learn so much more, that they could grow up singing Lift Every Voice. One of the stories which I only encountered as an adult was that of the first African resident on Sapelo Island off the coast of Georgia. Bilali was an educated young Muslim when he was captured somewhere in West Africa sometime in the late 18th century. Observations recorded during his lifetime, stories told about him by his descendants more than 100 years after his death, and a document in his own hand tell us that he must have been a person of extraordinary strength of body, mind, and character. He survived the terror of kidnapping, torn forever from his home, family, and community. Then the deprivation and horror of imprisonment, the desperation of the voyage to an unknown destination, and the years of hard labor which followed. Bilali chose to live, to make the accommodations necessary to stay alive through permanent exile and enslavement, and at the same time, to live with dignity. He was taken first to the Bahamas then in 1802 brought to Sapello along with at least some of his children, perhaps all of his family, and placed in charge of a new plantation. Bilali was by then an expert in the cultivation of several demanding crops. His commanding presence was noted by visitors to the island and recalled by his descendants. Though they knew his name, they also referred to him as the African, because he remained steadfastly true to his heritage. Among themselves, the members of his family conversed in Fula, the language of his birthplace, as well as the Arabic they used for ritual purposes, regularly observing the hours of prayer. 
Bilali also remained a scholar. After his death, a bound leather notebook in which he had written was found among his possessions. I'm grateful to those who recognized its importance even before they knew how to read it. It has now been recognized as a treatise in Arabic on West African Islamic law. Learning of this highly literate man, cut off from his heritage, from his community, from books, from the discourse for which he had been educated for so many decades, caused me to perceive more keenly than I ever had before the utter evil of the Atlantic slave trade and its long dark shadow still with us. I believe his is a story that should be known. For me, this is also a story that literally cuts close to home. My husband's grandfather grew up on Dufusky, several islands north of Sapella, speaking Gullah, the language created from a mixture of African languages and English by the early residents of those coastal areas. The down payment for the house in which we live came from Harold's share from the sale of Dufusky land. We are indebted, if not directly to Bilali himself, certainly to his counterparts on that other island. And to a larger extent, not only my family, but all of us, are indebted also to Bilali and to the uncountable others whose labor grew this country, who were here by compulsion, never compensated or even thanked. We owe to them and to their descendants acknowledgement and gratitude. We owe to them an end to systemic racism. We owe reparations in a variety of forms so that their descendants are given real opportunities and genuinely equitable societal structures. And we owe that we seek and tell their stories so they are not lost, but take their place in the full story of our nation. Our reading comes from So You Want to Talk About Race by Gioma Oluo, one of the many books that's now topping the New York Times bestseller list. She writes the following near the beginning of the book. These are very scary times for a lot of people who are just now realizing that America is not and never has been the melting pot utopia their parents and teachers told them it was. These are very scary times for those who are just now realizing how justifiably hurt, angry, and terrified so many people of color have been all along. These are very stressful <clears throat> times for people of color who have been fighting and yelling and trying to protect themselves from a world that doesn't care to suddenly be asked by those who've ignored them for so long, 
What has been happening your entire life? Can you educate me? Now that we are all in the room, <clears throat> how do we start this discussion? This is not just a gap in experience and viewpoint. The Grand Canyon is a gap. This is a chasm that you could drop entire solar systems into. But no matter how daunting, you are here because you want to hear and to be heard. You are here because you know that something is very wrong and you want a change. We can find our way to each other. We can find a way to our truths. I've seen it happen. My life is a testament to it. And it all starts with conversation. Author Ijeoma Oluo points out how the desire that's, that's taking hold of the country to cross this chasm of race and history, the one you could drop whole solar systems into, how it begins, the way to bridge it, with conversation. Conversation that might be awkward, particularly for white folks who aren't used to it. Conversation that we as a nation have to learn how to have. Conversation that will inevitably cause some hurt. Conversation that hopefully people of color won't be asked to lead. As white folks learn that we have to first do our own reckoning research, education, among ourselves. Conversation that is already teaching some Americans, white Americans in particular, how little we really knew about our country, about what it means in particular to live as a brown person, an indigenous person, or any other person of color, but especially as a black person in America. And all this truth that is the truth of lived experience in this moment, how it didn't just show up this way, right? In this moment, ex nihilo, as we say in religion. It was laid down, those layers of lies and customs of quiet assents and legal and legislative choices to codify practices and myths and prejudices and inequities that would have a momentum of their own. That's what structural racism is all about, right? That set of practices and structures and customs that has this seemingly natural momentum forward to replicate itself, the ease of it all, the deniability. And so the slaver's rope ties to the church's doctrine, links to the overseer's whip, 
is connected to the ropes hung over trees on courthouse lawns and children forcibly walked by human beings hung from trees, strange fruit meant to send a message. And a force created initially to recapture runaway slaves morphs into the uniformed officers that hold back the marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and hold back the protesters in Washington, D.C., outside the White House, and laws that justified human ownership, later limit voting, and then codify loan practices to exclude the main means for wealth accumulation from black Americans, and social security that intentionally chooses to exclude cleaning ladies and day laborers and nannies lifts the largest number of people out of poverty in American history, any act of government in US history ever, but it leaves black folk behind. And all this carries down to a knee in the neck while bystanders yell for mercy and a woman screaming danger in a park for no reason but her own pride and a boy hunted down while jogging or shot by police for fighting back and whose crime otherwise, in one case recently, was being inebriated at the fast food drive through line. History has to be part of this conversation, the one that bridges the chasm so we cannot say that anything we see is anything but legacy, long and chosen again and again by white folk. And the big difference now maybe is that cell phone videos and police body cameras and security camera footage has broken through any denial of what is being chosen and how often. Judith came to me with part of that history and the question and the sadness and the anger about the part of the history that is about a person's story being lost. Stolen history. Lost, stolen, buried for many black Americans in particular. And the basics of that story is familiar. It's not universal for all black Americans, but it is a common part of many black Americans' stories. The part that overlaps with Bilali's. A person taken away from their home, kidnapped by slavers, crammed into inhuman spaces for an inhuman journey to an inhumane life. And part of that story, of course, is people taken from their land, their culture, their families, slave logs, only listing the sex and approximate age of the person. And so the erasing begins. Families got no official privileging to stay together nor people of a certain language or cultural group. Only in Louisiana and very late in Alabama were there laws that said that mothers couldn't be separated from their small children, wedding vows not legally recognized, included changes of wording to things like until death or distance do you part. So, robbed of one story, 
Any story you tried to create and keep was regularly ripped from you. In 1930, as part of the Works Progress Administration, writers were dispatched to take oral histories of those adults who were still alive, who had once been enslaved, and the Smithsonian put out a collection of some of these oral histories in a book with accompanying recordings called Remembering Slavery. African Americans talk about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. In it, and elsewhere where oral histories exist, there are documented accounts of those former enslaved folks after emancipation trying desperately to reunite with husbands or children or parents. One woman, Ava Strayhorn, told of how her mother had watched so many folks from her part of the country who'd been emancipated head north with Union soldiers to start a new life somewhere else, but how her mother stayed. My Henry is in the South, her mother said, and I'll never see him again if I leave the old home place, for he won't know where to find me. Strayhorn's mother, in order to stay, had to formally take the oath of peace at the local Freedmen's Bureau, miles away. Does anyone know what the oath of peace is? It was an oath you had to take saying you would obey the laws and not harbor rebel soldiers or others who were hindering the cause of the North. So she took the oath and she stayed and waited in a cabin in the woods. Eventually, eventually, in her case, it was her former master who snuck back and offered to take her and her kids south to where he knew her husband was. And that ending was a happy one, but so many couldn't find their loved ones or found them in new marriages or found the children taken from them as infants or toddlers who had by then been raised by other parents. One woman, Harriet Smith, describes watching soldiers walk a road, all of them heading home, as she and her friends stood and leaned up against a fence just after emancipation. She tells a story about how one black soldier comes over and talks to them and then says to one girl, did she want to go back with him to San Antonio? He had an extra horse. And so she went with him and she was never heard from again. The interviewer asked, she didn't even tell her mama she was going or anything, huh? And Mrs. Smith answered, she didn't have any mother. Imagine, imagine so little connection, so little to hold you, so little story to tell, that someone you don't know offers you a chance to start to make a story with them, a stranger headed to a strange land, and you go. You could make that sound glamorous, I imagine, adventurous. 
But at its heart, it is a tale of unspeakable loss and yearning to be done with loss. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African American Research at Harvard University, is also, as you may know, the host of Finding Your Roots, a show on PBS, which I highly encourage you to watch if you haven't. Gates interviews famous people about what they know about their family history and their genealogy, and then he brings in his professional genealogical researchers and geneticists to try and fill in the gaps. Early on, the show was almost entirely, I think, black American guests. And it speaks, the show, always to the power of knowing the story, the larger story of the family that we're part of. In one episode, Amir Khalib Thompson, an American musician, band leader, and DJ professionally known to many of you as Questlove, he listens as Gates traces his roots, meaning traces Questlove's roots, back to one relative who was a day laborer, a great-grandfather in Mobile, Alabama. And then, even rarer, they find documents that say that that man's father was registered as Charles Lewis. And they look at the census document that has his name, and it includes his birthplace, Africa. More research reveals that Lewis was one of the slaves on the last ship to bring slaves to the U.S., the infamous Clotilda that brought, when it left Africa, 125 slaves from Benin, West Africa, into Mobile, Alabama in 1860, 52 years after the importing of slaves had been made illegal. The operator of the ship, so the story goes, brought the ship and the slaves across to win a wager he'd made that, in which he said he could do that. Another guest, actor S. Epatha Merkerson, finds that part of her lineage traces back to the 272 slaves that the Jesuit leaders of Georgetown University sold in 1838 when they also sold their increasingly unprofitable tobacco plantations in the infamous sale that kept the university alive and which has been part, as some of you may know, of a very public conversation about accountability and reparations. Apatha said of knowing what she'd been told of some of her descendants, they have names. Questlove said of the discoveries about his lineage, until an hour ago, I didn't know who I was or where I came from. To really have roots, I mean, what tree do you know that can thrive without any place in the ground?
think it takes much to give us a sense of the river of life in which we stand as part of and to know gratitude for those that brought us to this moment and some of what they endured. But all of that, or having some of that and the sense of obligation and joy and purpose in carrying it forward, it's such powerful knowledge. How it changes your sense of yourself and your place in this world. Think about your own family roots and whatever it is you know about them, the names you know, the few facts. A few months back, my father and I got on Ancestry.com. It's costing us a fortune at this point. But it's addicting to trace back, to feel the power of whole branches of trees that open up and there are stories and photos saved there. And, and it's so painful too to hit the losses of a dead end in your family tree and not know what was passed there. There is, there is a power in knowing these stories that we're part of and a literal rootlessness in not knowing them. And I don't know all the reasons why that is true, but I feel the truth of it. So there's this piece of what black Americans have lost. And then there is Judith's story the one she brought, this other layer it adds to this conversation. This story, just this one story of the man we know as Bilali brought to the Georgia Sea Isles by way of the Bahamas and originally from some part of the vast coast of West Africa, even that we don't know about him. His is a story that opens up in a small leather-bound book he leaves behind in his native language. A book that not only told volumes about Arab law, but even more so, it told volumes about a man who had a whole life a rich and promising life with training and gifts to offer to his own people, stolen from him and almost entirely lost. Even any trace of it. And one imagines him writing the volume of law and wonders why. Why write it? out of love of the law and the studies, out of yearning for that life, to leave a legacy, a little bit of legacy, the legacy you dreamed of for yourself as a young man that was taken from you, and maybe also, maybe, to keep that piece of your story alive, even if just for yourself. So in today's conversation, this piece of it, we name, we start to name all that's stolen and thereby all that's lost in the history of our nation, of our people. Lost first in slavery, how insufficient those 
four words are, five words are. And then in a world of structural inequalities that disadvantage black people and people of color so that stories of talent and accomplishment that could have and could still unfold are lost or in danger of being lost to the world in unrealized possibility. And how indigenous communities were and are still systematically eliminated and with them the loss of stories and culture, the fight to hang on to culture and stories that remain. And this America that one would think privileges the loss of story, the devaluing of ties to place and some kind of rootlessness And who does that serve? So to Ijeoma Uluo's point, let this morning be part of the conversation that starts to bridge the chasm that is race and history. The one that could swallow whole solar systems except and unless we insist on going where it takes us, even stumbling our way through it. And we do insist, don't we? I expect, as miracles and mysteries often work their magic, that we will find, all of us find, that the journey to tend to another's wholeness and healing long overdue takes all of us on a parallel journey towards our shared healing and wholeness. And so we close with a prayer. Spirit of life and love, may all people mourn the names they do not know, the places they will not know as their own, but that they have in their blood that we do have these people and places nonetheless is so. So may the lineage of survivors of resilient people be one we still call on in moments of need and despair. May our lives be ones we still live to make proud their lives and sacrifice, to live out dreams they must have hoped their descendants someday would be capable of. And may we know together that for this nation to thrive, we must have the hard conversations that are about telling the stories that hold our feet to the fire about the reality of loss and suffering and the call to make this a land finally with liberty and justice for all. Amen. Thank you.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.